This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B A H A I dot O R G. Or you can call the toll free number 1 800 22 Unite. Today I'm playing a telephone interview with Heather Carden, a Baha'i and author of the book Partners in Spirit. What couples say about marriages that work. We also find out in the interview that she is a poet and has other works in the pipeline for publication. I started the interview by asking Heather where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up mostly in eastern Canada. My parents um, started out in the maritime provinces, but my father's work took him first to Ontario and then to western Quebec. So from the time I was eight until I was probably 17, I lived in eastern Canada, actually in the city that I have now come back to after 25 or more years of absence. And what city is that? I live in Gatineau, Quebec. Mm -hmm. Really, it's the Ottawa Valley region of Canada. Our capital is literally 10 minutes down the highway from our house. But... There's a river that goes through which separates two provinces, not unlike uh, in the States. I visited Louisiana, uh, in Kentucky one time, and Indiana. I think you cross a bridge and you go from Kentucky to Indiana in about 10 minutes, you know. So it's very similar here. Mm -hmm. You grew up in this area through elementary school, secondary school? Yes, I graduated from high school here. Mm Mm-hmm and then went on to a first year at university, which didn't go overly well. Now, why didn't it go so well? I probably was a little young. I was 16. Mm -hmm. Oh, 16, starting college? Yes. Now, why was that? Uh, The way the system works here, it still works that way here to some degree. Uh, Kids graduate out of what's grade 11, which would be a grade 12, except that there's an interim college level and in the time that I was graduating if you had good marks you could get admission directly to universities so I did Mm. I skipped the college for the university and that would have been all right there were some subjects I was stronger in than others and what were those subjects (laughs) I'm a very good English major (laughs) (laughs) yeah so how long were you in college well, I just did a year. Mm-hmm. Did you grow up as a Baha'i? I did. Okay, so tell me a little bit about your parents' background, of how they found out about the Baha'i faith, and what was it like growing up as a Baha'i? Okay. Uh, my father and my mother, respectively, were uh, living in Toronto in the late 1940s and early 1950s. And there are lots of family stories about this, but for my mother... Uh, Her sister went to live in the United States in the Washington area and met um, a Persian man whose name was Ali Kuli Khan. 
who was relatively well-known to the Baha'is of the area, and he shared the Baha'i teachings with my aunt, who then went home to Toronto to visit, and they were five children in the family, four of them daughters, and all four of the daughters decided to embrace the Baha'i teachings in the early 1950s. At the same time, my father uh, encountered one of the early Baha'is in Canada, but Mr. John Rabart sons were my father's classmates, and they had encountered the Baha'i faith previously. So they and another classmate, in fact, several classmates from that era, encountered the Baha'i faith and started going to what we call firesides. Mm-hmm. My father describes actually the process by which he came into the Baha'i faith, and my mother did, and they thus met in Toronto uh, in 1953, I think, and this process is somewhat described in the book, so I won't go into it, but sure. they fell in love, and mm-hmm. they got married, and I grew up the eldest of six Baha'i children, mm-hmm. uh, all of whom have chosen in our adult lives to remain practitioners of the Baha'i faith. Mm-hmm. So I have a lot of Baha'i relatives with cousins and aunts and mm-hmm. uncles and mm-hmm. nieces and sisters and... A lot of people around, mostly Canada and the States, mm-hmm. who practice the Baha'i faith. I see. And what was it like being a Baha'i in a culture that was not so prevalently Baha'i? Well, I think we were considered a little unusual, uh, which for me wasn't too difficult because I like <laughs> being a little unusual, I suppose. Okay. But for my second sister, it was more difficult because she... I think was more comfortable in trying to be a little bit more conforming. Mm-hmm. And so being a Baha'i in some ways, it was a little weird for people to hear about. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, we were quite enriched because part of the Baha'i teachings, of course, is this oneness of people from all over the world. And my parents at the time were serving on what is called the International Pioneer Committee of the Baha'is of Canada. I believe there's an equivalent in the United States. And what is that? Well, where people offer to go to different regions of the world to support the Baha'is there or to support the Baha'i teaching process there. And so my parents were part of the committee that fielded these requests, Mm. which meant that we had people traveling through our home from all walks of life and from around the world. which So we had, in a sense, an international upbringing because of my parents' adherence to the Baha'i teaching. Mm. It was really rich, actually. It was lovely. Mm. It, it led to, I think, a certain internationalism, or a sense of internationalism, probably from a young age, which was not particularly politicized. Mm-hmm. And that I have found quite valuable in my adult life to, and have traveled quite a bit as a result myself. Mm-hmm. You had mentioned earlier that after your year of college, you went pioneering yourself. I did. I went to some French islands, which are somewhat anomalous. They're called Saint-Pierre-et-Miquelon. I already spoke some French, but I felt like I should learn it more fluently, and France still has colonial holdings here and there, Mm -hmm. and these very small islands are actually off to the southern tip of Newfoundland. So I went there and I spent 14 months 
and you there's no missionaries per se in the Baha'i faith, so you have to make a living. So I worked there, and at the time I was able to do that. I think they have stricter laws now, which probably don't allow non-French citizens to do that. Mm-hmm. And it was a really good way to to grow up, mm-hmm. to uh, you know those those very crucial years when you're 17, 18, 19, and deciding what you want to do with your life and. So uh, I came out of the St. Pierre experience having talked with many people about the Baha'i faith, and in fact one of those people later herself chose to declare her faith in Baha'u'llah and is the first ever St. Pierre to become a Baha'i, and she still practices her faith, although she's not still in St. Pierre. But it was really uh, a lot of mentorship for me, I think, from uh, people who were there, and having another language, of course, is always a blessing. Mm-hmm. So then by that time, well, I, I met a person that I really liked, and he didn't live there. So, And my parents also by this time had moved to Saskatchewan, and I had never been to the Prairie Provinces. So I went to the Prairie Provinces and worked for a while and then went back to school. Mm-hmm. Now, what, did, what kind of work did you do when you went pioneering? Oh, waitressing, uh, <laughs> hotel hotel cleaning, mm-hmm. uh, tutoring English to the sons and daughters of gendarmes, who are the French police force. Mm. Uh, pretty much, uh, I think I enjoyed working in a boutique at one point where I sold French perfume. Mm-hmm. It was pretty eclectic. Mm-hmm. Many uh, people at that age do just about anything they can find, don't they? Yeah. As long as it's legal and moral and something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And what about when you returned to Canada, I worked as a doctor's office receptionist until mm-hmm. I could go back to school, and then all through university, of course, I also worked in the library mostly. Mm-hmm. Uh, that took a few years because I got two degrees at that time. I completed a Bachelor of Arts and then subsequently went straight into a Bachelor of Education. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, right away out of university, uh, I met my husband, mm-hmm. and we got married in 1984, I guess it was, and very quickly thereafter, I went to my first teaching position, and since then I've been teaching, not nonstop, but pretty consistently for almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. And what age group? High school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, high school English? Some, mostly English, but I also have done uh, senior history, uh, something called expressive arts, visual arts, some drama, some French, of course. French is very helpful for getting a job in Canada. I imagine the same for Spanish in the United States. Mm-hmm. I don't do math. <laughs> I just don't. <laughs> but anything else, they could, you know, you have to be fairly broadly educated in high schools these days, and I do have a good background in the humanities in general, mm-hmm. English literature. Now, what do you like about teaching high school? Well, what I liked most when I was still there, because I'm, no, I'm kind of casual now, mm. and I've just received a position that I'll start in January. I'll actually be teaching at a university here rather than high school, so that's a change for me. Mm-hmm. But I think the thing about high school that I liked the most was the kids. Obviously, most teachers will tell you that, but I think those of us who stay in the teaching profession a long time just find that the delight of seeing a student or having an opportunity to work with a student where the lights go on and they get it and see the, for an English teacher, it's the writing process, uh, seeing the improvements, 
having fun together, just getting to know each other a little bit. Um, I have been considered to be a somewhat creative teacher. I integrate the arts a lot into even standardized types of things. So I had a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you give me an example? Of? Of incorporating the arts with your teaching? Oh, sure. Uh, one of the things that I've done in a few schools is uh, when you're studying a particular poet or passage from uh, literature, rather than just trying to memorize it or commit or talk about it, I would ask students things like, uh, how would you express this visually and can you integrate it into a project? And then we would do all kinds of things with multimedia. And in fact, in some schools, you'll, you can still go and there'll be these great large mosaics on the wall that are integrating visual arts with literature, quite lovely. Mm. I I think that if a person is allowed to develop that creative self within, it can manifest in so many different ways. And so my job, in a sense, was to uh, find out how that would express itself for a given student in the most interesting ways possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, Baha'u'llah, who is the founder of our faith, refers to education as the process of, quote, mining gems. And uh, I guess I always thought of it that way, that I wasn't so much, uh, I guess, in the terms of the, the jargon, I'm not much a, of a teacher-centered teacher, although clearly I do like to speak. But I really enjoyed integrating what is thought of as uh, student-centered learning into the classrooms. And particularly nowadays, I think, because of systems, Classes are often an hour or an hour and a quarter long when we know pedagogically that many people don't have an attention span longer than about 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. So you have to do something after that initial 20 minutes that's really engaging, Mm -hmm. whether it's conversation. Sometimes people rely a little on video, but I'm not a strong advocate of use of video in the classroom because there's so much video out of the classroom that I think it's easy to become desensitized. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, if you get me started on education, I can go on for a really long time. Yeah. <laughs> How many years were you teaching? Almost 20, and I still have my foot in the door, so I'm not mm-hmm. sure how many it's going to be by by the time all is said and done. But, you know, I had three kids in in, in that time, and so when I was having my children, it would tend to be more part-time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it's, I guess my first, the first time I ever walked into a classroom as a paid teacher was the year after I graduated because they had a shortage of supply teachers, so I actually supply taught in my old school. And then when I went to Papua New Guinea, uh, walk, I walked into classrooms with 40 kids, and that, I would have been, what, 21, and I'm now 50. So it's been a while. So when did you go to Papua New Guinea? I went from 1978. 1981 as a CUSO, which is our Canadian equivalent of your Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. So this was before you were married? Yes. Uh-huh. And tell me about your experience there at Papua New Guinea. Hmm. Well, I started on the coast in a city called Madang, and it was actually a mission school run by a Catholic priests. So that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I I think I should tell you that at that time I was just beginning to shape my own sense of feminism and how I could integrate what I was learning 
from the women's movement with what I already knew as a Baha'i woman trying to articulate the equality of women with men as a principle. And so that was kind of interesting to be in a little bit of an anachronistic situation, um, certainly male-dominated, and um, I ended up doing a number of things under the guise of what was called expressive arts, like uh, teaching the boys to cook, for example. Mm-hmm. Now, technically, that wasn't on the curriculum, but when you're living in what we used to call a third-world country, and some people still do, um, there's a lot of room for maneuvering. Sometimes the curriculum can be a guideline rather than a set-in-stone thing. So for that first year in Medang, I was teaching certainly English as a second language, English literature, and expressive arts. And then I transferred to a school in the Highlands, which was 7,000 feet above sea level, so a little cooler. Uh, Not a tropical coastal paradise, but um, quite... When you think of Papua New Guinea, you tend to think of, you know, those images in National Geographic. Mm -hmm. And I think that they're pretty accurate. (laughs) (laughs) So, So, you know, you'd be driving along and having to stop or dodge tribal warfare and so forth. And I actually... When I'm not writing Baha'i works, I write a lot of uh, creative nonfiction and poetry, and those years in Papua New Guinea have found their way into the poems and creative nonfiction. And one of my stories talks about a real event, which was that one of the students who ran, the students ran in for tremendous amounts of distance. There's no such thing as a school bus in such a place. So they'd have, they'd learn to run to school regardless of the weather, and one boy had cut his foot running in, and the school nurse tried to sew it up for him, and his foot was so tough, it broke the needle. She just couldn't sew it. It was quite a dramatic example of how it is to teach in a place where all of your expectations and assumptions have to disappear. I mean, the, the school buildings themselves were thatch hut, uh, you know, no flooring. I, there, there are stories about fleas, you know, fleas lived there, and <laughs> I would be teaching and trying to say something, and it, it was always kind of fun for the students and I to see how far the fleas could get before you'd catch them, and once I got so carried away, one made it all the way up to my chest before I got them and squished them, and you just some weird things, I suppose, but it sounds it sounds esoteric, but in in fact, what I found there, as in every place that I have taught, was that the principles of the Baha'i faith in terms of the oneness of humanity were simply true once you got beyond the fact that the facts of, oh, here's this tall Canadian woman who sings a lot and waddles like a cassowary type of thing. Then you get beyond that, and all of a sudden, these people all around you who have such an extraordinarily different background are true friends, really special and wonderful people, and lots of good memories. Mm, that's sweet. And you left because your term with the nonprofit organization completed. It ended, and yeah. it was time to go, yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you had mentioned something about a new position in January? I just got offered it. Okay. I'll be doing sessional work mm-hmm. at a university here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Mm-hmm. 
Now, you wrote a book called Partners in Spirit, What Couples Say About Marriages That Work. Yes, I did. Now, what inspired you to write this book? My parents. Oh, tell me about that. (laughs) Well, I should say that and probably, of course, having worked with young people for a very long time, um, people generally seem to have a very dark view of the institution of marriage. And I have three kids myself, who the eldest is now 21, my youngest is 16, and you know, you have these family discussions about the institution of marriage, and certainly my husband and I have tried to model a good marriage for our kids, but I'd say 50% or more of the kids I was teaching almost couldn't believe it was possible to sustain a long-term relationship in any positive way because that wasn't their experience because of so many divorces. And I started thinking about it and realizing that almost every piece of literature, not all, but if you're going to read about it, there's a lot about divorce. You go into any store that sells books or television programs, there is a lot of grief. And my parents, they've now been married for 51 years, they really like each other. Mm. They really love each other. They, they're funny. They have great family stories, and I, I grew up with that. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, maybe it would be of value to, talk, to make a book for people that's heartening, that pe- find out, uh, that gives some examples of what does work rather than what does not work. So I just started talking to people and um, asking around, you know, how long have you been married and what do you think are some of the things that have helped you to be married that long? And it was fascinating. You know, I know how to do the academic thing, but I wasn't interested in doing that. I was really just interested in narratives. And it started to develop, and I thought, you know, this is kind of working. And so I put together, took a little while because it's not an easy thing to talk about sometime. And in fact, for the, for people who read this book, I think they'll be surprised by the level of openness and honesty about the challenges in marriages as well. I mean, there are people who talked to me in my book about uh, challenges with HIV, Mm. challenges with the loss of their children, challenges with uh, alcoholism, all kinds of the normal social things that we deal with. But what I found interesting is that these very normal people oftentimes used faith or consultation or some mechanism by which they just toughed it out. Very few of the people I talked to found being married easy, but all of them were very committed to being married to each other and staying married, and some of them had been previously married, and it hadn't worked, so there were stepchildren involved in some of the marriages. It was just really rich, again, for me to hear the stories. Mm. So... Yeah. Gradually, the built book the book built itself really. Mm-hmm. And what's the significance of the titles "Partners in Spirit"? Well, there is a very strong spiritual foundation to Baha'i marriage, and probably many marriages. Although I can't speak about that because I'm not in one, and I didn't talk to a lot of people who didn't have a spiritual foundation. 
And it's probably the ultimate partnership to make a commitment to somebody for the rest of your life and beyond, according to Baha'i teaching. There, I think that one of the things I like about the stories from the people who shared in Partners in Spirit is that on the one hand, there certainly is a spiritual underpinning for many of them, and how that translated in practice was sometimes really quite practical, prosaic. And the other side of it is it's not very esoteric. There's some, a lot of the stories there are really about, as one of the people says, being in the trenches, <laughs> mm-hmm. so that... There's a, as with most of the things that I find in the Baha'i faith, a certain idealism, marriage, if you'll pardon the verb, to pragmatism. Mm. I like that, you know, because mm. I'm in a marriage, and that's how I find it myself. Is mm. Certainly, you know, my husband and I share, I think, a spiritual longing and desire, and we have a, an independent life in, in prayer and, and practice, but... You also have to pay the mortgage, raise the children, decide what's for dinner, all of those kinds of things. And how do you do those things on a day-to-day basis? Uh, Those kinds of stories were a part of what people were sharing. Mm. And I really appreciated that kind of ability or willingness to go to the heart of matters in every possible way. I was a little overwhelmed, to tell you the truth, as some of the stories came in, and I was going, wow. I don't think I could share that deeply. Mm. And how long did it take you to compile the interviews? Four years. Four years? Yes. Mm -hmm. And that was in between, you see, because I was interested and I didn't know how long it was going to take, but at the same time I was um, beginning my life as a published poet, so having to do a lot of writing and submitting in that area, and also uh, writing my master's thesis, which I got in 2005. So when I, was, when I was kind of tired of the academic side of things and didn't have much to say for the thesis, I would take a break and, you know, write to a friend and say, by the way, did you finish anything that you wanted to share for my book? And they might or might not respond right away another time. Or I would call somebody and say, you know, let's do that interview now. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I didn't have anything much to do on the book, I might just hope for the inspiration of poems. So I was doing three writing projects at a time, and which is actually what I'm doing now as well, and trying to hang out as much as possible with my kids and my husband and, you know, having yeah. a life. Yeah, right. <laughs> so how long ago was the book published? Just this fall, this October. Fall. Okay, so it's a recent publication. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's quite a wonderful thing for somebody who's always wanted to write, Mm -hmm. to hold her first book in her hands, Mm -hmm. and actually my second has now been accepted, so I seem to be on a little bit of a roll. That's good. Now you mentioned also that you're a published poet. Yeah. Can you tell me about what you've published? Well, sure. Um, A few years back when I was still working at the Maxwell International Baha'i School on Vancouver Island, I was uh, sitting late at night, and I suppose I was in some kind of a meditative state, and some impulse, I thought, you know, I used to write poems, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I had used to write poems, nothing that I had attempted to publish, but I just wrote down in one take a poem called Trinity. And I thought, well, maybe this is worth something. I mean, it, it expressed something I had wanted to try and say. 
And the next day I went into the Maxwell Library, and there's actually a magazine from the United States, the wonderful magazine it's called World Order, that the Baha'is publish. And so I just sent it off to them, and then I forgot about it. And a couple years later, after I had moved east, I got an email from somebody saying, World Order's looking for you. And so I emailed them, and they wanted to publish my poem. And I thought, how lovely. That was encouraging, and so I sent them some more, and they actually have published more and have more that they are going to publish. And then I thought, well, I should start submitting to secular magazines. And so during the time that I was um, at doing my master's work, which I started in 2002, I encountered a, a really quite wonderful professor uh, you know, the, I think that happens to people is somewhere along the line there's someone you can thank, you know, uh, there's a teacher you can thank kind of thing. And uh, she was teaching a course called Poetry of Witness, which was based in a text that I just absolutely adore. It's called Against Forgetting. And uh, it's edited by Carolyn Forche, who is just a wonderful American poet. And she had gathered uh, an anthology of poems from the 20th century which had to do with various themes of, of, of political upheaval. So, you know, you had Anna Akhmatova from Russia, for example, writing during the revolution, or later you would have had poets like Amiria Baraka writing during the Vietnam era, and she had gathered this into this wonderful anthology. And I ended up doing a seminar very, very long seminar uh, in my naivete, way too long, on Pablo Neruda's work uh, from Latin America, and um, also studying a number of Canadian women poets. And I think what happens as a writer is when you're being inspired by whom, by the people you're reading, you also end up just feeling that inclination to write. And so I began submitting, and I have now been publishing uh, in several literary magazines here in Canada, in addition to World Order in the States, and have just ret returned, actually, from a writer's retreat. It's called a Master Poets Retreat that's run on Vancouver Island at a, an old nunnery called Glenerly, uh, where pa Patrick Lane is a mentor to poets who are at various stages of their poetic careers. And we were 17 poets gathered for four days just going through that process of learning more about the, the muse and the genre and having somebody who is a multiply published poet and a, a winner of uh, what we call here our Governor General's Awards, which is um, something very special. I suppose any poet who is publishing really may not aspire specifically to awards, but if you get one of those, it's a kind of... Canada saying you're great. Mm. <laughs> so it was quite a special thing for me. And there are a number of publications. Uh, Leaf Press is one of my favorites. You can look it up online. Uh, can you spell it? L-E-A-F Press. Okay. Uh, it's www.leafpress.com. And um, a, th what happens with poems, of course, is that it takes a little while to get known and to get anthologized, but there are many independent little presses like that, and so typically they'll produce anything, could be what they call a chap book, or could be uh, little booklets which might be as much as 40 pages or so. And when you go into 
in our country, it's chapters. I imagine there you've got Barnes and Noble and Borders and all these kinds of stories. There's always a poetry section, and you'll have anthologies, but you'll also have these books that have been produced by a poet of a particular, you know, several po- pr- presses. And in Canada, we have maybe four or five. So that's the stage of my poetry that I'm at, as having been published in several uh, journals and hoping to now put together my first actual manuscript. I have a lot of poems, but it's an, edito- an editorial process. Mm-hmm. So. so tell me about your the first poem you mentioned, Trinity. Mm-hmm. Well, it was quite simple. I was looking at trees. <laughs> there were trees. In fact, my daughter was recently in Vancouver Island, and she came to me and said, you know, Mom, they cut those trees down from the poem. But I just had a fancy, and I did a couple of allusions in the poem, one of them to Whitman. Uh, I never got to study Walt Whitman at university, which was kind of funny because I kind of wanted to go back to university to be able to do that. But with a master's program and, of course, doctoral programs, you always end up having to select from what's being offered by the experts at the time. And there's a lot more being done in the 20th century or the 16th century, but not a whole lot of 19th century stuff. And even there, I didn't get a chance. But however, I said, you know, who doesn't love Whitman? So that was what I knew to allude to. And it was just a kind of a muse in the night. Mm. So how long is the poem? Oh, it's one page. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, actually, if there are aspiring poets listening, uh, I should tell them my experience of the last few years in terms of moving into the poetic world is that most, not all, but most literary journals um, tend to prefer shorter poems, and there are some conspicuous exceptions. One of them is in Canada called the Malahat Review, which every second year does a contest for the long poem, and actually one of our Canadian authors who's probably well-known to many Americans is a man named Michael Ondaatje. Uh, he wrote a book called The English Patient, which was made into a movie oh, yeah, I just, that a lot of people are I familiar read, with. I just read that book recently. Well, there you go. Well, Michael is um, one of the people who has put together the long poem anthologies. In, and uh, So there is a genre for people who write longer and narrative-type poems often, but usually literary journals want stuff that will fit onto a page or perhaps two, unless they specify otherwise. So there's little tricks of the trade that you learn in the processing. Mm. I think that's the first time that I said A in this whole interview. <laughs> I get teased about that because I, 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 um, I've been working with people in Chicago as a result of publishing Partners in Spirit and one of the... People have been teasing me about my Canadian propensity to say A, but I think that's the first time it slipped. Oh, that's very good. (laughs) I'm not sure, though. (laughs) Well, I'll find out when I go over the interview. Sure. (laughs) Um, So you said you have another book you've completed but not published? Yes. Can you tell me anything about it? I sure can. All right. It's called A Warm Place in My Heart. It's also being published by a Baha'i publisher, but not in the United States. This one's called George Ronald, and they're out of England, out mm-hmm. of the U.K. And again, I used the interview process, but I did not 
uh, do what I had done in Partners, which was to put a lot of my own commentary. In this book, I asked the question of young people. I'm using the term young somewhat loosely because they were ages 13 to about 30, who practiced the Baha'i faith, why they would do that. And quite frankly, I did it because to be, I don't think it's easy to practice a faith, any faith, in a fairly secular age, but in particular, the Baha'i teachings do have high standards with respect to certain elements of life, including, for example, uh, we don't, we're not meant to drink alcohol or take drugs. And this is a culture which accepts at least alcohol as a kind of a normal form of life. And so people who choose not to drink or to drug or a number of other things, let alone having a prayer life, we have obligatory prayer, these kinds of things are not necessarily easy for people. And for young people in particular, I was thinking, you know, what is it about Baha'i teaching that would attract you to wanting to commit yourself to a faith that requires very high standards. And my eldest daughter had made the comment to me, Mom, adults don't get youth voices right. And I don't know if it's always true, but it seemed to me that uh, it was probably true, and I had studied during my master's work this whole idea of appropriation, of taking on someone else's voice, which some novelists do very, very successfully, but which perhaps it's not so easy to do. So I thought, well, I think the best way to get around that is I'm genuinely interested in why young people believe and the struggles that they have in doing so and how does that implicate for them the choices that they make and what, what does faith mean for a young Baha'i. And I, entered, I ended up interviewing, well, I have a couple more of the interviews still coming in, but it's about 30 people from around the world, and simply writing an introduction and then putting, I edited all of them, of course, but not so much for content as much for just making sure the English was well done or that it was clear and so forth. And that book is the one that has been accepted for publication next. Mm-hmm. And when do you anticipate it being released? I'm guessing it'll be at least a year, but it could mm-hmm. be as long as 18 months to two years based on precedent. By the time you do all the the editing process of a book, it just astonished me. I've been on a, a pretty steep learning curve here. Mm-hmm. And um, you can finish a book, but until the publisher says, we're going to bring it out at such and such a time, uh, it basically sits and waits. Mm-hmm. And uh, then when they do put, put it, bring it out, there's quite a bit of push to get it into good shape and the cover picture, you know, the, the things chosen that mm-hmm. go with it and where it's going to be marketed and those kinds of things. Are you allowed to give us the title? Well, I hope so. Okay. Um, certainly on the last book, I had a different title, but they suggested the Partners in Spirit one, and I could understand the rationale, so I accepted it. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one, so far, my title is is A Warm Place in My Heart, but it's not actually my title in the sense that I didn't say it's a quote. It's an excerpt from a quotation by Shoghi Effendi, who was the guardian of our faith during a period of time, And he wrote something in 1929 about youth in which he said that they held a warm place in his heart. And 
since I, too, as a teacher, have had the experience of holding a warm place in my heart for young people, um, well, and for people in general, because some of us just grow older, but we still have young hearts. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it seemed appropriate, and I hope that the publishers will agree when the time comes, but we haven't started that conversation yet. Right. Do you have uh, another book in the works? (laughs) I do. Okay. my third book is a, uh, for the Baha'i, from a Baha'i perspective. I have also a couple of poetry anthologies that I'm working on and one creative nonfiction mm-hmm. as yet untitled. But the Baha'i series, uh, the third one is somewhat loosely based on the format of the first one. Again, I'm interviewing people and I'm still in process with the interviews. What I'm finding, of course, is when you already have one book published and one book out, people respond more quickly than they did with the first one where it was kind of nebulous. But this one is about the only other area I feel like I have any real uh, legitimate commentary to be able to share, and that is in education. Mm -hmm. So I'm tentatively titling this one, Hidden Mysteries, Educators Speak from Heart and Spirit. And I have almost all of the first chapter done. I have three interviews that have come in for that, and I have the outline done, and I have probably a little bit written in half of it. So I'm giving myself maybe a six-month time frame to have enough to be able to offer it to the high publishing who have first dibs by contract on my work now. Mm-hmm. You said you had a couple of non-Baha'i works in progress? Yes. I have um, one manuscript which I don't know if the American listeners are familiar with public radio, but here, probably so. Oh, yeah. And here in Canada, our CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, is in fact a public radio company which thus is really encouraging, generally speaking, of the arts. And there's an annual competition uh, both for prose and poetry, and last year one of my manuscripts shortlisted uh, on that. So that has encouraged me to work on that manuscript a bit more. It's called Close to Being Holy. Another manuscript that I'm fooling around with is tentatively called Here and There, which isn't very profound, but in fact I started thinking about post-colonial issues which had occurred during the time that I was doing my studies. And so I think the here section is going to be some of the commentary that I've made from living as a North American, and the there part will be more from my travels overseas, particularly in Belize. I spent quite a bit of time in Belize. When was that? Oh, I probably first went there in 1979, and then later again two or three times, and most recently I took my kids, and we went on a a six-week summer journey to Belize, Honduras, and Guatemala. Mm. I I wanted my kids to, and my dear husband was home working for us, but we flew first to Belize, and then we took buses throughout Guatemala and Honduras. I have a brother-in-law, too, actually, who are from Honduras, and so one of them met us, and we just had a really kind of an insider's touristic view. 
it was quite dramatic and remarkable, and whenever you have something of that nature, you end up writing, I think, as a writer. And one of the, actually, one of the poems that World Order has accepted, World Order Magazine has accepted, is a poem called In Gloria's Garden. And Gloria was one of my hostesses in Honduras, and I wrote quite a long poem about my travels in Central America, and so that one I expect will be in print in the next year or so. Mm. Well, Heather, thank you very much. It's my pleasure, it's been. I thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk a little bit about why my books are out there. Great, and uh, best of luck to you. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Heather Carden, a Baha'i and author of the book Partners in Spirit, What Couples Say About Marriages That Work. For a copy of this and other interviews, you're welcome to go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i Perspective.
This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.